Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. And Paul Bonanos, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's podcast, the European Commission released its first major overhaul of pharmaceutical law in decades, but is it a missed opportunity? An approval in ALS comes with what could become an anchor biomarker for the disease. And biopharma deal momentum continues. Astellis has a $5.9 billion ophthalmology takeout and Sanofi in a deal with Mays. Today's podcast is brought to you by BioCentury's BioEquity Europe conference that's coming up in two weeks in Dublin, Ireland. Register today at bioequityeurope.com. Okay, the European Commission spent years consulting stakeholders and drafting the first major overhaul of European pharmaceutical law in 20 years. Steve, we actually got leaked copies of this draft law a few months ago. Uh, First up, before we dig into the details, What's actually new here? Well, I should start with a reminder of what the whole thing's about, right? Like you said, it's the first major European pharma legislation for about 20 years. And I think most people think it's the last one that they're going to do for 20 years also. The heart of the the law is a reduction of regulatory data protection, which is a kind of IP protection, from eight years to six years for new drugs. And then there's four ways to earn back the RDP, the regulatory data protection, uh, launching in all EU countries within two years, meeting an unmet need, conducting a comparative clinical trial, getting a major new indication approved. So the biggest thing that's changed is that now, instead of offering an additional one year of RDP for launching in all 27 EU countries within two years of approval, now it's two years of RDP. So they've kind of sweetened the incentive for doing that. The problem is that the companies that I've spoken with and trade associations say the change isn't meaningful because for a variety of reasons, it's usually not possible, no matter what the company's motivations and how much resources they put into it, to actually launch in every EU country within two years. So having um, the opportunity to get two years of RDP rather than one year of RDP for something that they think that they can't do is not really a meaningful change. And I think that it's part of a bigger issue with what the biopharma companies say about the legislation, which is that it's out of sync with the the business model of innovative drug development, that most of the incentives that are there are structured in ways that the companies can't predict whether they're going to be able to achieve those milestones at the times when they have to make big investments in drug development. So instead of incentivizing them to do something that they might not have done otherwise, it's basically they turn into rewards for those who are lucky lucky enough to achieve those things rather than those who actually have taken steps that will get them there. Tell me some good news, Steve. Anything in there that's going to make the regulatory environment in Europe more productive in terms of innovation? Yeah, there are, there are a number of provisions in the draft legislation that are intended to streamline regulation. 
basically to make the timelines for reviews in Europe more in line with what's typical for reviews in the United States. There's also an interesting provision in there for creating what they call a regulatory sandbox, which basically is a, is an, a space that's carved out for EMA to say, well, look, you can do innovative things without having to go back to the European Parliament and European Commission for permission. So the idea is that they can kind of future-proof um, this legislation. As I said, people don't think that another major revision is going to be in the works for a couple of decades, and it's impossible now to predict everything that's going to be needed to stay current. So there's a there is this provision for a regulatory sandbox in which EMA can carve out space for innovation as it becomes needed going forward. Right. One thing I wanted to ask you about was the impact or potential impact on orphan drugs. Steve, you touched on that a bit. So, so, so basically, basically, it's not great news for orphan drugs. That's the 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 bottom line. It's not disastrous, but it it, it's not great. So, uh, currently, orphan drugs get uh, ten years of exclusivity in Europe, and the manufacturers can get another 10 years of exclusivity for every new indication, right? And they can stack those on top of themselves. It gets a little bit complicated because there's also off-label prescribing. So getting another 10 years after one orphan exclusivity is expired, it's not something that allows you to keep other drugs necessarily off the market for for that whole period of time. But it it does confer benefits. For example, um, it allows companies to uh, market drugs for indications that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise and things like that. So the new proposal is that the uh, standard would be cut down to nine years, and then there would be a new category of orphan drugs for well-established uses, which would be five years. Then orphan drug approvals that fulfill the criteria for a high unmet need would be eligible for an extra year. So that's 10 years. Uh, The people I spoke with said that the way that that high unmet need is defined makes it very difficult, if not impossible, for most orphan drugs to achieve. So the consensus is basically is that the exclusivity for orphan drugs in Europe is cut down from 10 years to nine years. It's probably a good time to mention also that this is a draft legislation it's the beginning of a process that most people think is going to take at least two years to complete, and there's going to be a lot of opportunities for changes. I am sure that there's going to be a lot of lobbying from orphan disease advocates in Europe to bump that nine years for standard orphan drug exclusivity back up to 10 years, and there's going to be a lot of lobbying on all of the different provisions that are in the law on both sides. There are um, countries in Europe that have already filed papers with the European Commission indicating that they're not happy with the draft legislation on both sides. Germany, for example, and Denmark indicated that they're not happy with cutting the um, regulatory data protection. Austria and the Netherlands, uh, Romania, and some other countries filed a document saying that they think that the European Commission has been too generous to drug companies and that there should be more of a a reduction in RDP and much more stringent terms for companies to get some of that um, RDP back. All right. Well, sounds like something you're going to be digging into for 
some time, Steve. Um, Steve's story goes into this uh, in quite some detail. You can find it up on our website, biocentury.com. Last week, FDA granted accelerated approval to Tofersen, a SOD1 targeting antisense therapy from Biogen and Ionis to treat a subset of ALS patients. Obviously, it's great news for the ALS community. But Selena, beyond getting a new drug across the goal line for ALS, what is the significance of this approval? Right. So this approval ushers in neurofilament as a surrogate endpoint for ALS. And I think one of the big questions out there is how meaningful it's going to be, not just in within the context of ALS, but within neurodegeneration broadly. Um, so I guess one way I've been sort of thinking about this question is, can neurofilament become the ORR of neurodegeneration? So if you look at like the therapeutic area where use of surrogate endpoints and accelerated approval has become pretty well standardized. Um, the oncology department there is kind of a well-oiled machine for getting promising therapies to patients quickly using this, this pathway, right? And the major workhorse there for a surrogate endpoint is objective response rate or overall response rate. It's basically the response of the tumor. Sometimes, you know, they'll use progression-free survival or something else, but nine times out of 10, <laughs> It's ORR. And ORR kind of has two things going for it, right? So to meet the standard for a surrogate endpoint to uh, be used for accelerated approval, it has to be reasonably, like, reasonably likely to predict a clinical benefit. So everybody knows with the cancer patient, the problem is their tumor. If you apply a drug, it shrinks the tumor. It's not that hard to argue that that's reasonably likely to give them some kind of benefit. It's not perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be reasonably likely. That's the point. So it's a very straightforward rationale. And then the other thing is that ORR is useful, not just for prostate cancer, but for breast cancer and lung cancer. I mean, it's broadly applicable across the therapeutic area of cancer. And so I guess the question now is, is neurology going to have something analogous in neurofilament? Neurofilament is, it's not specific to any one drug or target or disease, it's a readout of active, ongoing axon degeneration. So when an axon is injured or it's degenerating, it kind of leaks things from the inside of it to the outside. And neurofilament is a structural component in there. It happens to be really abundant. So you can see it in places like the cerebral spinal fluid or the plasma in those situations. So it's a kind of closely tied to the degeneration process. So you could make the argument it might be reasonably likely to predict some kind of benefit and not just in one disease that involves degeneration, but, but many of them. And so that's, that's kind of the question. I, I want to ask you a question there. Is it really as good a surrogate endpoint as ORR? And by that, I mean, is there the same kind of scientific consensus around it as there is around ORR? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question, right? I think right now there's not as much data around it obviously, as there is around ORR. I mean, cancer is just so far ahead of neurology, but it has been studied in lots of contexts. I mean, there's a rich academic literature for sure. So there's a lot of data uh, on it in multiple sclerosis and ALS. There's SMA. There's pretty good data there. And then a bunch of studies in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and whatnot. 
it's unclear yet if it's going to be uniformly useful. So that's why I'm posing it as a question rather than a statement. Um, so like the amount that neurofilament gets upregulated in degeneration, it differs across the diseases, really high in ALS, which maybe is why it went first. And that might have something to do with the fact that, you know, some of these are really long diseases, whereas ALS is relatively aggressive degeneration process. So you might be getting a more leak. And, and, and the more neurofilament you have in the plasma, the easier it is to probably see a change from that signal. And then, okay, and then there's one twist that needs to be kind of thought through in the developmental context. So something like SMA, because when our brains are developing, we overconnect everything. There's tons of axons and dendrites making way more synapses than you're actually going to have. They're like, you think of it as like sampling the space of connectivity. They're testing out all these possible communication partners and deciding which ones they need to actually stick with. And they prune all the others. So there's all this active pruning that's going on when a, a baby is born still. And so you have a kind of high neurofilament initially when you're born, all of us do. And then it comes down. And then against that backdrop, you then have to see disease changes. So it's, it's a little tricky in the developmental space. But I, I do think that this is going to propel what was already an active area of research across the neurology field, it's going to like push the gas on figuring out exactly where it can be used. Right. And have you seen any companies start rethinking their clinical trial strategy based on Biogen's experience here? Well, certainly within ALS, we are already seeing companies changing their clinical trial designs in multiple ways. Yes, neurofilament will now be in pretty much every trial, I imagine. It can be used in multiple ways. It's also really powerful prognostically. So what Biogen found was that the, your baseline level of neurofilament at the beginning is a very good predictor of how rapidly you're going to progress in the trial. And so ALS is notorious for being a super heterogeneous disease where some patients progress really rapidly and others more slowly. And that when you're talking about especially small numbers of patients in a trial, that adds a lot of noise to your data, makes it hard to see a clear result. So stratifying patients by their baseline neurofilament is definitely going to become more common. Biogen's partner, Ionis, already has made that change to a different program of theirs that's wholly owned for a different target in ALS. Another thing that's not related to neurofilament is just they determine the length of their trial. Uh, if you're targeting something upstream in the disease process, six months is not long enough to, to see a benefit. And so yeah, we saw Ionis lengthen their trial to twice that long. And then I think the other thing that's worth pointing out here is just that this was an accelerated approval. Biogen has to confirm the benefit. It's a very rare disease subset that they're looking at. So the way they're going about that is they're running a trial at an earlier phase of the disease. These happen to be people who have the disease because they have a causative mutation. So they can identify them before they have symptoms. So they're doing this pre-symptomatic trial as their confirmation of benefit, and it would expand you know, the label to that setting. But it also gives them this really cool opportunity to, I think, advance biomarker research even more. Because what they can do, they're doing this natural history run-in where they're just taking people with these mutations and they're observing them and they're testing lots of biomarkers. And when they see neurofilament levels climb at a certain pace to a certain amount that by their model predicts somebody should get symptoms in six to 12 months, that's when they start the treatment. But with neurofilament now so well established, what they can do is they can look at all these other biomarkers with relationship 
to neurofilament. That's why neurofilament is this anchor biomarker now. And they can say, okay, well, if neurofilament is predicting disease onset, if something else comes up strongly around that time, it too should be predicting disease onset. Or is there something that comes up even before neurofilament? That might be even better in the um, prevention setting or as a, you know, a therapeutic target. So I think that's going to benefit the field. All right. Thanks for that, Selena. We have several deals out early this week. I'd like to zero in on two of them. As I mentioned at the top, Estellas is buying ophthalmic company Iveric, and Mays has a deal with Sanofi in Pompeii disease. Paul, why don't you start with the first one? Sure. Um, as you say, it's a deal where uh, Estellas is paying $5.9 billion to acquire Iveric, a company that is nearing FDA approval. They have a, a goal date in August for a complement 5 inhibitor to treat geographic atrophy, which is a complication of AMD. And most likely, it will be second to market in that indication. There's another company, Apellis, that got over the goal line first in February when FDA approved uh, their complement 3 inhibitor. Both companies have been considered takeout targets, and now Iveric is first. Maybe first of two, maybe they're the only one that, would, that will be taken out, but um, they've accepted Estellis' offer. Now, this isn't one of those deals where a biotech program gets slotted in next to commercialized products in a pharma's pipeline. This is really a case where Estellas is buying to build something in ophthalmology. They have identified eye care, blindness specifically, as a priority area of innovation. I think they call them primary focus areas. That's one of five, strategically, the, the way they're thinking about um, innovation right now. They've dabbled in ophthalmology a few times before. I know they've outlicensed a couple of products in recent years. Now they're showing a deeper commitment with this one. It's, it's a lot of cash and... Um, it kind of gives them an anchor product. It looks like Iveric's product, Zimura, Zimura, it's called Z-I-M-U-R-A, will anchor that effort while the rest of the pipeline comes up behind with, with gene therapies and cell therapies and new modalities and such. Paul, you mentioned a pellis. How does the competitive space look in GA? Yeah, it's it's hard to say exactly how it will develop, but a pellis will be first to market. They are first to market. They're approved. But it's also a very big indication. Both companies believe there are at least a million U.S. patients uh, with geographic atrophy. So there may very well be room for you know, more than one product to perform well in the marketplace. And of course, there's Europe and other geographies as well. Apellis, like I said, they just gained approval in February. They haven't reported any sales figures yet. Those are due this week, actually, from the first partial quarter on the market. It's been just a couple of months, so you know it's hard to say. In the case of um, Iveric being taken out, you know, maybe a bigger company's commercial strength will help them. Even if they're second to market, they could eclipse some of the first mover advantage by being backed by somebody as big as uh, Astellas. And that's even with the caveat that this is still an emerging area for Astellas. But then Apellas might be acquired too. There have been these rumors circulating for so long that chatter that they're a target. So maybe someone else will buy them. Maybe it's, I don't know, Novartis or Bayer or Roche, someone with uh, historical strength in ophthalmology. So someone like that might step up and then you'd have two heavyweights uh, in the marketplace all of a sudden. And also it's worth mentioning one thing that might be a differentiator. Iveric's product did meet the primary endpoints in two phase three trials. And Apellis's actually missed in one of its phase threes. They went to a later time point a longer evaluation of the drug's efficacy, and they were able to build a case that its drug had an effect that deepened over time and reached statistical significance on the endpoint that served as the primary endpoint at a later time point. 
so that could affect perceptions of efficacy, labeling language. You know, we don't know. Iveric is still compiling longer-term data on its therapy as well. Turning to Maze's deal with Sanofi, and we'll spare everyone all the puns that have been flying around the the World Wide Web this morning. Uh, what's going on with that deal? Okay, so uh, Maze, uh, which is private, um, they they have a platform and engineer their own drug candidates. They've got a few different irons in the fire, but the most advanced program they have right now is a glycogen synthase one inhibitor, and that's phase two ready for Pompeii disease. You may know that's a lysosomal storage disorder where patients aren't able to convert glycogen to glucose and it builds up in tissues. It can affect the heart, the lungs, and muscle. There are enzyme replacement therapies out there and have been for a while, but this is actually a different approach. Uh, instead of replacing the enzyme that makes the conversion, they call their approach substrate reduction. Instead of replacing the enzyme, they reduce its production in the first place. And they see this as something that may work as monotherapy or in combination with ERT. And one other thing that's different about it is it's an oral therapy and it could be the first for Pompeii. And that could be a very big deal. Anyway, they, they received $150 million up front. They're already a well-funded biotech with um, close to $400 million in equity capital raised to date. They're eligible for another $600 million in milestones plus royalties. And all of this allows them to keep working on what's in their pipeline. They've got an apple lipoprotein L1 program for chronic kidney disease and an ataxin 2 program for ALS. How does this fit with what Sanofi already has going on in Pompeii? Yeah, that's, that's an area where Sanofi already has plenty of strength. They have two drugs that um, in 2022 generated more than a billion euro, uh, which is also more than a billion dollars uh, in revenue last year. One of them is uh, Lumizyme, also known as Myozyme. That's been around for a bit. I think first approved in 2006. But then there's another kind of next generation one, Nexviazyme, that was approved a couple of years ago. And that's, that's growing in sales. So yes, Sanofi already has plenty of commercial strength in Pompeii, as well as other rare diseases. Um, now, there is more in the pipeline for Pompeii from other companies. Amicus, for one, has a, a two-component therapy. That's uh, under FDA and EMA review right now. I think one, one component is already approved by EMA, but the other is not. And it's partially an enzyme replacement therapy with uh, some sort of enzyme stabilizer as well as the other component, I believe. There are also a few gene therapies in the clinic. And it's hard to say how this will shake out in the long term. But, you know, maybe this is one area where an oral therapy has a chance to outdo newer modalities uh, or approaches that are just a lot more complicated. We've seen this, for example, in spinal muscular atrophy, where Roche's pill is about to become the bestseller in that disease area, even though there's a gene therapy and an ASO, antisense oligo, also in the commercial mix. So, you know, that's a ways off. Again, we're just getting into phase two here for Maze and Sanofi. It's an area we'll keep an eye on. It's a really devastating disease. And, um, you know, we'll be watching and writing about it. So stay tuned. Excellent. Thanks for that, Paul. Paul has stories out on both of the deals he was discussing up on biocentury.com. You'll also find Selena's deep dive into what the approval of Tofersen means for the ALS and more broadly neurodegenerative space. Coming up on our sister podcast this week, the Biocentury Show, our editor-in-chief, Simone Fishburne, will be talking with 
Matai Mammon. He is a longtime J&J executive who is now getting ready to take over the top spot at Fog Pharmaceutical. And so be sure to tune into that. You'll be able to tune in wherever you get your podcasts or uh, on our website or on our YouTube channel for the BioCentury show. And don't forget BioEquity Europe right around the corner. Go to bioequityeurope.com to learn how you can register for that. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Steve, Selena, Paul, thank you for joining me today. And uh, thanks to all of you for tuning in. We will catch you next week. <laughs>